Hello there. Uh, we haven't got any slides. I'm standing next to this blank screen, so you just have to imagine them. There's problems with the projector. I don't think it would make a great deal of difference. The main aim to have them was if you got a little bit bored, it would give you something to stare at. So as it is, you'll just have to picture them being there. Um, as, as, as Scott said, this is my book, Strange Labyrinth, that I'm going to be talking about tonight. It's about Epping Forest. Um, it came out back in April. I've done a huge amount of events since then, so you might be expecting that tonight, which is actually my last event for a long while, after tonight, I'm going back to my room uh, to weep over my next book that's meant to be delivered in three weeks. Um, so you might think that it's going to be a pretty polished presentation tonight. Um, I'm really sorry to have to start by disabusing you, but most of the events I've done have been Q&As rather than a proper presentation. I've only done one of these, and I spoke so fast that most of the audience... Do you remember that Maxell advert from the 1980s most of the, with the hair flying back? Most of the audience just sat and stared at me with a look of sort of sheer cross between horror and confusion as I babbled at them. So uh, I apologise for that in advance. I can't stop it. It's how I talk. Um, and in between, when I've done the Q&As, what I've tended to go for is a kind of highly weaponised self-deprecation uh, on the principle that the best way to sell a book is to convince you that I'm, uh, the book's silly and I'm a bit stupid. Uh, so I apologise for that as well. Uh, all I can really say in my defence is that I like, I think, like most people, I like to pretend that my flaws are actually the flaws of something else. So I'm going to claim that the flaws of, of, of Will Ashen, the presenter, are actually in the material. They're flaws to do with Epping Forest. Uh, they're part of the problem inherent in what I'm here to talk about. Um, and I guess what I want to impress upon you most uh, about Epping Forest is what a contradictory what a slippery kind of space it is uh, so that as soon as you make a decision about what you think about it it immediately uh, becomes the opposite of whatever you've decided that it is um, maybe a good example to start off with to 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 impress that upon you is to talk about uh, the word forest itself uh, when people mention forests you immediately think you're going to hear a lot about trees uh, Actually, the word has nothing to do with trees at all. It's, um, strictly speaking, forest is king's hunting land. Uh, it's governed by forest law instead of common law. All the wild animals of that land uh, belong to the king, and the land is supposed to be maintained to the benefit of those animals so that when the king wants to kill them, they're there and ready and looking good and healthy for him to do that. Uh, the Latin word forest, F-O-R-I-S, actually means outside. And the word forestare, or forestar, my, my pronunciation of Latin isn't too good, but I'm hoping all the Romans are dead, so that should be okay. Forestar means to keep out, to place off limits, to exclude. So no fencing in, no enclosing, no farming of that land without the permission of the sovereign. Uh, and it's a practice that goes back probably at least until the Saxons, but it's the Normans who really formalised this and, and firmed it up. Uh, so when William I, William the Conqueror, also known as William the Bastard, uh, invaded and made himself king, one of the first things he did was to afforest giant sections of England, uh, the obvious ones being the New Forest, Forest of Dean, but also uh, the Forest of Essex, uh, of which Epping Forest is now a small, uh, rather pathetic remnant. The Forest of Essex was 400 square miles that was set aside as King's Hunting Land. Um, and the rules, the penalties uh, involved with forest law were, were really quite um, stringent. So you could have your eyes plucked out for killing a stag. Uh, there were rules about what dogs you could keep uh, and how their claws had to be cut and what length the claws were allowed to grow to. There were rules about um, 
how bushes were to be cut and at what time of year they could be cut. Uh, all of which led uh, the Saxons, who weren't very fond of William for a variety of reasons, which should be fairly obvious, uh, to say in the Peterborough Chronicles that he loved the stags as much as if he were their father, which of course suggests that he loved their mothers rather more. Um, and after William, the, his successors, the kings who came after him, uh, forested even more land. This wasn't the end of it. They thought this was a, this was a great wheeze, so they carried on uh, forresting even bigger chunks of, of England. And that carried on right up until Magna Carta in 1215, um, which devotes four clauses uh, to, to, to forestry issues, and in particular this, this expansion beyond the original boundaries that William had set. And it was set that those boundaries should be shrunk back and knights were sent out on perambulations to walk the borders and work out exactly where they should be. And obviously Magna Carta was followed two years later by the Charter of the Forest in 1217. It will be 800 years this November since that, that document, uh, I don't think it was published, I don't know what you call it, since that document, document came into being. Um, once again, you'd have thought in a book coming out uh, on the 800th anniversary of, of the Charter of the Forest, I would have made rather more of it. It only gets a mention on one page in there, I don't know what I was thinking. Um, uh, the Charter of the Forest is interesting. In some ways, a lot of people consider it a more interesting document than Magna Carta because Magna Carta is about the barons, whereas the Charter of the Forest deals more with ordinary people. So there's a notion in there, some people claim a notion in there of human rights. They say it's one of the first uh, times that human rights uh, gets mentioned in this type of document, although admittedly, rather than being a, a right to free speech, for instance, it's a right to allow your pig to eat acorns in another man's wood. But you know, you have to start somewhere. You know, you can't, you can't do these things all, all at once. Um, and ecologists are very fond of the Charter of the Forest too, because there's a notion in it of stewardship of the land rather than ownership, uh, which they consider to be quite important. Sorry, I'm just gonna have a quick drink. Uh, when I started writing this book, if you'd asked me what forest meant, I would have said, oh, it's a big wood. You know, uh, i.e., I thought it was a category of nature, like a waterfall, for instance. Uh, but it's not. It's a category of law. It's a category of law. Um, uh, and that's, that hopefully, later on, that will make sense why that might be important. Um, I'm now going to tell you a bit about Epping Forest itself. Um, I presume some people have come because they know Epping Forest and have been to Epping Forest, I'm guessing. Yeah, there's a few nods, that's good. I'm actually gonna ask, is there anyone who was born in the Woodford area here? Yes, do you count? Yay, no, that's brilliant. Everywhere I've gone, I did a talk in Scotland two weeks ago and I said, is there anyone who was born in the Woodford area? Because at every other talk I'd done, there had been, and even there, the Woodford diaspora didn't let me down. So that's brilliant. Um, I live in Walthamstow, uh, so the, the roots of this book actually lie uh, in the fact that around four years ago I gave up my job. I used to work in the music business. Um, I'd written a couple of novels the best part of ten years ago now, which uh, nobody read, which is why I hadn't uh, had another no novel published since. And I left my job thinking, I know, I'm going to write my great novel. I'm going to reach for literary immortality. I'm going to settle down now, I'll give up my job, and I'll write my masterpiece. Uh, and as tends to happen when you set up such a both grandiose and nebulous idea, what I actually did was sit at my desk, staring at my computer, um, and occasionally uh, leaving sad messages on Twitter. Uh, so as an improvement on, on, on that, I started going out for walks in, 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 in Epping Forest, um, just, just for something to do, really. 
Um, but one thing you discover is that um, when, when, when you're married and you've given up your job and your wife still works full time, saying you've just gone out for a walk in the wood that day isn't necessarily the cleverest way to present your day. So what you tend to do is you dress it up a bit. And the way I dressed it up was by saying, yeah, I think I might uh, write a book about Epping Forest, actually. Yeah, I think that would be pretty interesting. Uh, and before I knew it, everybody seemed to know that I was writing a book about Epping Forest. So, um, and what you discover very quickly is the gap between actually writing a book and pretending to write a book is a, a very narrow one. Because you have to know something about it. People ask you questions. They say, oh, well, what, what did you... What did you make of this, or do you know about this? So I started going to the library and reading books, you know, ancient tomes about Epping Forest in order to have something to tell people. And eventually I just realised it was easier to write the book than to continue to pretend to write it, uh, which was kind of how it came about. Uh, Epping Forest itself, we'll settle, to, settle on now, is roughly 6,000 acres of land. Um, it's about 12 to 16 miles from end to end, depending on whether you fly from the southernmost tip to the northernmost or you walk round, because I guess it curves that way from your side, it curves. Um, it starts at Forest Gate in East London. That's only about a mile north of um, uh, West Ham United's old ground at the Bolin. So it's properly in East London. And the, the lower parts of it are fairly scrappy. They sit between, obviously, numerous roads. Um, there's quite a lot of football pitches. Um, and still quite a lot of trees as well. Uh, but as you head north through uh, Leytonstone and Leighton and Walthamstow and Hyams Park and get to Chingford, once you get beyond Chingford, you come out of Greater London and out into West Essex, the countryside of West Essex. And the forest sort of broadens and the trees get bigger and older and you really feel like you're in the forest of, of our imagination in that we all, I think, as we all grow up reading fairy stories and so on, in which for forests play such an important part, we all have a forest in our heads as well as the reality of Epping Forest, which at times is slightly different to that, to that mythical forest we carry around with us. Uh, and it runs from there up right up to the market town of Epping, uh, just beyond that, which is just outside of the M25. Uh, Epping Forest was saved for the nation in 1878 by Act of Parliament. Uh, and what it was saved from was enclosure. Uh, that is the fencing in of common or wasteland for private profit, i.e. the privatisation of land. Uh, and this is kind of important to me. I came of political age in the 80s and I went on lots of demonstrations and marches protesting often about privatisation, which I saw as a new aberrant ideology invented by Margaret Thatcher and Sir Keith Joseph. Uh, when actually uh, privatisation of our, our common goods is something that's been going on in England for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. It's not a new phenomenon at all, despite my ignorant belief that it was. Um, so you can trace it right back uh, to the Tudors uh, and the, the collapse of the common field system uh, as wool prices started to go up and people wanted to graze sheep. Uh, they started to take over the land to use uh, the fields for that. Uh, and then from there it moved on to wastelands and the forests tended to survive the longest because of their royal status, because they were meant to be kept uh, for the monarch of the day, they were largely protected for a long while. That started to break down uh, when the Hanovers took over from the Stuarts. The Stuarts were very keen hunters and obviously that has a trickle down effect because the people at the bottom want to make sure that the forest is ready should they happen to come hunting. The Hanovers didn't bother going hunting, so everybody relaxed a little bit and uh, it all got a bit easier and gradually people started to enclose parts of the forest land. Uh, there's a really good example of this in Epping Forest, a man called William Wellesley Pole. 
I just have another sip of water. Wellesley Pole was the younger brother of the Duke of Wellington, the Napoleonic war hero. Uh, but um, he himself, this, this is from his obituary, uh, a spendthrift, a profligate, and a gambler in his youth, he became a debauchee in manhood. Pretty good going. Uh, Wellesley Pole married Catherine Tilney Long of Wanstead House. Wanstead's down in the southern end of the forest. And they had control over a number of the forest manors in that area. Uh, he immediately put his own lawyer in charge of the forest courts, enclosed all of the forest land that, that he had, had control over and sold it uh, for farmland. Um, and made a lot of money and continued to spend it at an incredible rate. The, the story locally is that Wanstead House itself, which is no longer there, was actually knocked down and sold for mortar uh, in order to pay off some of, some of his many debts. And he continued in this way, just burning through every penny he could get his hands on. But obviously he set a kind of precedent for other, for other people in the area because people saw how much money he made and the fact that he got away with it. Um, and so it's estimated by 1848 about a fifth of Epping Forest had been enclosed. And that's kind of an important year because in 1848, Parliament decided to disafforest Epping Forest. Uh, that is, they sold the land as wasteland, not, not as land for building on or farming on, but sold it at a price where it was wasteland to local landowners. And at the same time, they also decided to enclose Hainault Forest. Um, Hainault Forest was right next to Epping Forest, just to the east of Epping Forest, and it was 4,000 acres of land. Uh, the Act was passed in 1851, and within, I think, three or four weeks, the trees had been ripped out of all 4,000 acres. It had all been cleared and turned to farmland. And uh, rents went up 800%. So, obviously, everyone thought, well, this is great. This is, this is exactly what we should be doing. And there was even more enclosure within Epping Forest. And it's calculated that around a third of Epping Forest was enclosed in that year, in 1851. And it dropped from 9,000 to the 6,000 acres it is now. Um, but actually, this also set in motion the chain of events which led to legal moves to protect the forest and its eventual saving by the Act of Parliament in 1878. But I'm not going to go into too much detail about that tonight. It's all in the book if you're interested. Um, instead, I want to focus on uh, what a disaster uh, enclosure was for, for the peasants of England. Um, the peasants relied on common land to, to make ends meet. Uh, it made up the gap in what they earned and what they needed to survive. Um, they collected wood, they grazed their animals, they collected mushrooms, they caught rabbits, etc., etc., on that land. Uh, and it's been estimated that collected firewood might be worth as much as 10% of a farm labourer's wages, and that milk from a cow might be worth as much as half of a farm labourer's wages. So um, it, it was a huge loss. And in addition to this, uh, the effects of enclosure had, had two further knock-on effects. One was that it, um, it depressed farm labourers' wages. They got paid less after enclosure because, uh, obviously, supply of labour went up because more people were chasing after work, so the wages they were paid went down. And at the same time, the cost of food went up because demand for food, because people had less food from uh, common land, the demand for food went up. So suddenly the gap between what you could earn and what you needed to earn was constantly growing the whole time. Um, and there was only a couple of things a peasant could really do to deal with this. One was to carry on using what was now private land as common land. So carry on grazing your cattle, carry on uh, collecting firewood, etc., etc. And the state's response to this was to massively increase the penalties for these actions. So within 30 or 40 years, something which would have got you 
three or four weeks in the workhouse uh, ended up uh, leading to transportation to the Americas, for instance. Uh, and under the Black Act, which is a specific case, but all the same, under the Black Act, poaching was punishable with death. Uh, you could be executed for poaching. So the other option was to move to the cities, which is what most people did. And we're often told about the Industrial Revolution as if, it was a, as if people moved from the countryside for the opportunity to work in factories. Actually, most people moved to the cities because they were starving and they had no other choice. Um, in 1801, 65% of the country lived in rural areas, and by 1901, that had fallen to 23%. I'm now going to talk about a specific example of this that relates directly to Epping Forest, and that's the story of John Clare, the poet. Um, the conventional view of John Clare, I think, is probably is one of our greatest nature poets. Um, he's placed up alongside Ted Hughes, but he's considered less mythic, more modest, more earthy, I suppose. Um, John Clare was born in Helpston in Northamptonshire in 1793. He was the son of an illiterate labourer. He had a little formal education. He did go to school now and again, but he often had to stop for work or to help the family out, so he didn't have that much education. But nevertheless, in 1820, he published his first collection of poetry in London, and it was a huge runaway success. He sold more volumes that year than Wordsworth did. Uh, he, was, he was the talk of the town. He really was. Um, and part of his success was based on the fact that he was marketed as a peasant poet. And I think the idea was that um, to the uh, literary classes of London, uh, a peasant from Northamptonshire seemed uh, as near to an animal as to a human being. So therefore, any poetry that he created would be giving you a view of nature from the inside. There's a very famous quote where he was called simple as a daisy. I actually think daisies are fairly complex, but there we are. Um, so, uh, and the other problem with being marketed in a very specific way is that people become bored of that marketing. You become trapped in a box and then people aren't interested. He was only allowed to write poems about nature. Often if he wrote more controversial poems, his publisher would take them out of the volume without telling him. Uh, and his later volume sold less and less. I guess people thought, well, I've, I've got my book of peasant poetry now. I don't need another one. And so gradually his sales fell and eventually he couldn't um, actually publish poetry at all. But the interesting thing is I think in some ways, although he does write about nature and nature is his subject, I would say he isn't a nature poet at all. I'd say he was an anti-enclosure poet. Um, and maybe I can unpack that a bit more. Uh, the land around Helpston, where he lived, uh, was uh, enclosed in 1809. There was an act of parliament, which was how it was done, for that piece of land to be enclosed. And it had three... Uh, really uh, devastating effects upon John Clare, really. Uh, the first is, is probably the hardest to explain. Um, there's this saying about knowing, uh, knowing something like the back of your hand. And I think for John Clare, reading, reading, reading his writings, it wasn't so much that he knew Helpston like the back of his hand. He actually thought of it as the back of his hand. He thought of the land around Helpston as part of his very being. So to be... Uh, to have fences put up and be told he couldn't enter parts of that land was like someone fencing off part of his very personality, his self, his soul. And so for him, it was a really traumatic event. Um, and, and that echoes through his poetry, that trauma. Uh, the second way it affected him was socially. Um, Claire believed that until this point, and I'm, I'm not going to argue about whether this is true or not, he felt that farmers and peasants worked very closely together. There was no real difference between a farmer and a peasant. 
Uh, but once enclosure came and the main um, social indicator of where you stood in the social hierarchy was through ownership of land, this massive schism opened between farmers and peasants. Uh, and he felt that the farmers uh, took on new airs and graces and started to treat themselves as if they were part of the ruling class and that the peasants were beneath them. Uh, the reason this is particularly important for John Clare was that at the time he was in love with a young girl called Mary Joyce and Mary was the daughter of farmers uh, and John felt that she felt she was too good for him and so he broke off the relationship although once again it's a relationship that echoes throughout his poetry throughout the rest of his life and that he goes back to again and again and that I'll come back to in a moment. Uh, the third and most obvious, the most concrete way in which it affected him was that he could no longer make a living. His poetry wasn't selling, he had to make a living somehow, but he couldn't get enough work and he wasn't paid enough when he did work uh, to feed his family. He had six children. And 20 years before, those six children would have been productive members of the family. Uh, the, the, the basis of common benefit would have been that they would have been looking after the cow or collecting firewood or what have you. There was something for them to do. But by this point, they've just become mouths to be fed. Um, and as I say, he couldn't get enough work. His debts grew. And as they did, he started to uh, suffer what were described as nervous problems. He started to, he, on one trip to London, he hallucinated uh, goblins chasing him. And he started to have more and more mental, mental health problems. But when he visited London, his fine friends in London had no inkling of this. So um, famously, they um, criticised him for eating and drinking too much and said, all, all your nervous problems will go away, John, if you just go on a diet. When actually, the reason he ate and drank so much when he was in London was because he could. The rest of the time, he was starving. But here, there was food and drink available. People were buying him dinner. So he took all he could. Uh, similarly, they... Um, gathered money to move the family from Helpston to Northborough to a small holding, which is basically like a tiny farm with some land. Uh, the idea being that then he could um, grow some crops or keep some animals and, he would, and everything would be fine. Uh, but nobody thought about where the money might come from to buy the crops or the animals. So the family sat in this new house at Northborough with John devastated to have left Helpston and with nothing to grow. So they grew nothing. So this process continued, and in 1837, uh, John's publisher, uh, John Taylor, sent a man to his door with a note, and I can't remember the exact words, but basically the note said, come with this man to London and he will get you help. But the man didn't take John Clare to London, actually. He took him to Epping Forest, and in particular, he took him to Lippitz Hill Lodge, a house which is still there. It's worth going to see. It's a beautiful house, actually, but that's not the point. Uh, the house at that time belonged to Dr. Matthew Allen, and it was an asylum. Um, I need to say at this point, when people hear about asylums in Victorian times, our immediate thought tends to be of people chained to walls and screaming and covered in their own filth. And it wasn't that kind of establishment at all. Matthew uh, Allen was a very forward-thinking psychiatrist, uh, uh, and his, his watchword was that there should be no appearance of restraint, which isn't the same as there being no restraint, it's worth noting, but certainly there was to be no appearance of it. So uh, patients were allowed to go out for walks in the woods, they were supposed to work in the gardens. This was supposed to be good for them. Although it infuriated John Clare, who was a peasant, who was now being asked to do peasants' work without being paid. It was the, almost worse than being left to do nothing. 
But all the same, actually, when he arrived there, he was quite happy. He thought he was there for a sort of rest cure, that he'd be there for four or five weeks, and then he'd go home feeling a bit better. And actually, Matthew Allen himself didn't think there was that much wrong with John Clare at this stage. He thought that if he had a regular income, he'd be fine to go home and everything would be okay. Uh, and to that end, he started raising money to buy a bond that would pay John this income so that he could go home. Unfortunately, uh, he couldn't raise enough money. Uh, the theory being that he was a bit unfashionable by this point, and so rich and powerful men weren't so keen to help out. But there's a certain double standard operating here, because what Dr. Allen decided to do with the money that he raised was spend it on John Clare's continuing care with him at Lippitz Hill Lodge. So he, he took the money he'd raised and gave it to himself in order to look after his celebrity patient uh, on, for, for a longer time at Lippitz Hill Lodge. Uh, and as John Clare realised he wasn't going anywhere, his, his mental health really, really did take a dive and he started telling guests that he was Lord Byron first and then that he was Jack Randall, the prize fighter, and later Lord Nelson as well. Um, and this went on for four years. He was there for four years. And, and this notion of no appearance of restraint is really important here because, in a way, there was nothing to stop him going. But on the other hand, he had no money. He didn't really know where he was. He had no way of getting home, and nobody offered to help him. So to all intents and purposes, although he wasn't in prison there, he still was in prison there. Um, and eventually, one day when he was out walking, John Clare bumped into a gypsy uh, in the woods out in Epping Forest. And he had a very close relationship with the gypsies from his time in Helpston. He'd, um, he'd learnt the fiddle from the gypsies at the camp near to Helpston, and, he was, and he'd always had a very good relationship with them. So he chatted to this gypsy, and this gypsy said, oh yeah, I can show you the way back to Northamptonshire, no problem at all. Uh, you set off down here, and then we'll go. And then he found out that John didn't have any money, and he lost interest a little bit in helping him. So John Clare came back the next day, ready to escape, to find that the gypsy had gone. The camp was gone. There was just a straw hat left on the floor. So he took the hat, and he decided he was going to go anyway. And he did. He walked home to Northamptonshire. It took him four days and four nights. He lived on grass. And towards the end, he chewed some tobacco that he had in his pouch. Uh, and he slept lying down uh, with his head pointing towards the pole star, so that when he woke the next morning, he'd know which direction was north. And it's known as the journey out of Essex because he wrote a very famous letter to Matthew Allen to apologise for escaping, which is a, such a beautiful John Clare thing to do, to sort of send this slightly apologetic letter saying, sorry about this, then, but also telling him what he'd done. Uh, and he went home. Uh, the Pole Star is really important because um, during his time at Lippitz Hill Lodge, uh, John Clare had become obsessed with Mary Joyce again. Uh, this, his childhood sweetheart, except that now she was transformed into a kind of uh, goddess uh, in, in his mind, a muse. Uh, and he associated her in his poetry with the pole star. So when he lay facing towards the pole star, he was facing towards Mary. And the journey wasn't a journey back to his poor actual wife, Patty. It was a journey back to Mary Joyce, who he thought would somehow liberate him. <coughs> Uh, except that when he got back to Northamptonshire, it turned out that she died two years earlier in a fire at the farm, at which point he did go back to the house in Northborough, to Patty, and he stayed there for six months or so uh, before he was admitted to the asylum at Northampton, where he stayed for the rest of his life, I think the best part of 30 years. 
uh, and made a few pennies now and again by writing love poetry for people. He'd sit outside the cathedral at Northampton and offer his services for a penny. Um, so all in all, a very sad and tragic life. Uh, I think we need to talk a little, what I want to talk about at this point is, is this idea of mental enclosure though, which is encapsulated in, in Matthew Allen's No Appearance of Restraint. Uh, uh, in particular, the way that we internalise restraints so that um, uh, we don't always have to be told that we can't do certain things because we've internalised those rules so, so well that we just automatically stay on the footpath, for instance, which is something I talk a bit about in the book. Um, and uh, much as the theory of race was developed uh, in order to justify slavery around this time, the landlust of the ruling class, this mania for enclosure, also had to be justified in some way. And the notion that developed uh, during the 19th century was the idea that getting free stuff from common land made uh, peasants morally ugly, that it was bad for them. Um, so Epping Forest was called the nursery and resort of the most idle and profligate of men. And then down in Hampshire, they talked about wastelands as, as nests of sloth, idleness, and misery. Um, and I'm hoping you're, you're, you're catching something in that rhetoric, because for me, when I read, read these accounts, what it reminded me of was the same rhetoric we use to this day that we find in tabloids in relation to, for instance, people who claim benefits, uh, that somehow they're getting a free lunch, a free ride off the rest of us. Uh, and it's interesting that much as actually privatisation is something that's been going on for hundreds of, hundreds of years, so has this rhetoric of, of um, who's worthy of having what, and uh, this idea that any common benefit is, is bad for us, is somehow morally bad for us and wrong. Uh, there's something of an irony here, because um, you might think at this point that I'm going to uh, claim the forest as a as a place that is resistant to enclosure. I mean, it wasn't enclosed, Epping Forest. But actually, of course, when you think about it, as I said at the start, uh, forests are enclosures of their own kind originally. I mean, the fact that they're set aside as king's land means, I mean, they're exclosures in a way. They exclude you from doing certain things. But in a way, they function in exactly the same way. Um, so once again, we're back to this idea of the forest as a kind of contradictory space. Um, and I spent a lot of time when I was writing this book trying to figure out how to uh, sort of characterise Epping Forest, how to hold things together, particularly as I kept finding these things which seemed to shoot off in different directions. And actually, it was a quote that I found that helped me work it out. And it's a quote from Alfred Hitchcock. Uh, Hitchcock grew up in Leytonstone. And he used to go to the forest for picnics after mass on a Sunday during the summer. Uh, and um, in, a, in, his, in his famous exchanges with Francois Truffaut, uh, Truffaut started criticising him for being too nice sometimes about the policemen in his films, making them heroes, which Truffaut didn't particularly like. And Hitchcock replied, I'm not against the police, I'm just afraid of them. Uh, and in the end, I settled on, on this idea, this idea of the space of Epping Forest as a space which is averse to authority, as, as being uh, a good way to characterise what the forest is about. And in a way, it's a space which is uncomfortable uh, with the way that those with power do what they want, but then also the way in which they justify doing what they want as being for all of our benefits, for other people's benefit. Uh, plus the tendency we all have, I think, to um, 
see things as set in stone, to see things as um, immutable and unmovable, that if something is this way, it will always be like this and there's nothing we can do about it. It's a really easy mindset, I find, personally, to fall into and, and a very dangerous one in lots of ways. Um, if I were to define authority here, I'd say it's power plus justification. So it's that, it's that mixture of the power to do what you want, but also to convince everyone else either that it's the right thing to do or just that that's how it's always been. And all the characters in the book, I think, share an aversion to uh, authority. Uh, and they run from um, people like Penny Rambo from the anarchist punk band Crass. Uh, Penny lives at Dial House, which is just beyond the northeastern tip of Epping Forest, and he's lived there since the late 60s. He still lives there with G Voucher, who made all the artwork for the Crass Records, amazing artwork. Uh, and obviously, Crass's famous phrase is, there is no authority but yourself. So I think you can, uh, it's quite easy to spot the probably more anti-authoritarian tendencies within Penny's work than the aversion to authority. Uh, but the book also runs all the way back to Mary Roth, uh, who lived at Loughton Hall, who was the first woman to publish a full-length prose work in English, which she published in 1621. Uh, and she's quite a remarkable figure too. Um, uh, despite all the pressures of those days and the fact that women couldn't inherit anything, when, when her husband died, she refused to remarry, which meant she was saddled with debts but with no income. Uh, she then had a relationship with her cousin and had two children by her cousin, and then wrote this scandalous book that was scandalous both personally about people it seemed to refer to within the aristocracy, but also was scandalous about the political situation at the time. So she, she's a really interesting character. Um, but today I'm going to actually just mention very briefly someone else, which is um, I think a lot of you will probably be familiar with this. This is a 40 in Society event, which is uh, Ken Campbell. Uh, just in case anyone here doesn't know Ken, uh, I, will, I, will, I will endeavour to explain him. I think you will all know him, even if you don't think you know him. He's a short, pot-bellied, bald man with very extravagant eyebrows, which he always said he grew long in order to corner the market in parts as mad scientists. Um, in a sense, his voice is as familiar as anything else. Uh, he, was, he was born in Gants Hill, which is kind of on the Essex East London borders, uh, but then he was educated at RADA as an actor. But rather than taking on RP, received pronunciation, he developed a kind of highly enunciated version of his Essex East London accent, which I can't do very well, but when you hear it, you think, oh, yeah, okay. Um, uh, Ken... Um, was probably best known for his work on television. I mean, he, he, was, he was Fred in, in Sickness and in Health, Alf Garnett's neighbour. He was in an episode of Faulty Towers, but he also appeared in films by Derek Jarman and Peter Greenaway. So it's a, a kind of unique straddling of the comic and the avant-garde, which I, I can't think of anyone else anywhere ever has, 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 has hit that kind of spot. But actually, it really speaks to, to, to what Ken was all about. He's probably best known as, as a theatre director, and probably in that, he's probably best known for The Warp, which uh, was a 23-hour play. It's in the Guinness Book of Records as the longest play ever performed. Um, but actually, in the book, what I focus on more is the Bald Trilogy, which was a series of three monologues that he wrote uh, in the 1990s, which are superb, I think. Uh, but I'm just going to... Uh, there's a particular quote that was a sort of touchstone for me in writing the book that I found in... A, I think it's an arena interview um, from the TV about The Warp, where he was asked about humour in his work, and Ken replied, I don't think anything which isn't funny should ever be put on. 
I think that serious drama is a very dangerous travesty of life. And as I say, I had that quote pinned above my desk while I was writing this book. And I think that's because humour is a particularly good tool and a very British tool uh, for dissolving or skipping over mental enclosures, the mental enclosures we might find ourselves stuck in. And it's also a fantastic way to undermine authority. Uh, so throughout the book, I take the mickey out of more or less everyone and everything that I come across. Um, but in one last twist, uh, it should be obvious that in a book, uh, the ultimate authority is always the author. It's, the clue is in the name. Uh, so if I was going to write a book that kind of reflected something of Epping Forest's nature, I was going to have to um, take the mickey out of myself more than anyone else. So quite a lot of the book is taken up with me staggering around the woods, uh, failing to climb trees and being scared of dogs. Uh, the beauty of it is, is that I'm unlikely to sue myself, so there we are. It's all good. Um, so what I'd like to do is end with a little reading from the book, and then if there's any questions, we can go to that. I hope that's all right. I hope I can read it. Should have brought my glasses. I picked up... I'm not going to start again, actually. I picked up a path through the scrub, the sun obstructed by trees, the light, the light dark and bright all at once and close together, so that it spotlit the old lady on the track in front of me as she stopped, turned back and looked at me. Her Alsatian stock still looking too, its eyes round and very black as it sized me up. It waited a moment, allowing time for my imagination to fill the gaps, then began slinking towards me, keeping itself low so that its shoulder blades stood up above its spine, quiet, purposeful. I was being hunted. I stopped walking and waited for the old lady to call the animal back. She didn't. We stood, two fixed points, the dog a vector between us. I tried not to look at it while keeping close tabs on its progress, holding only shoddily to the idea, often imparted to my children, that canines are hungry for attention rather than just hungry. When it was about four paces from me, it stopped again, raising its head and stared at me, completely unreadable, blocking the path. None of us moved until, in a slightly whiny voice, I asked her if she could call it back. She didn't appear to do anything much. Perhaps she turned away and started walking again. Perhaps the dog got bored of me. For whatever reason, it swung round and began moving off. I had a problem. There was only one path, and the woman and her dog were on it. I didn't much like the dog, and nor did I want her to think I was following her through the woods. The guilty feeling which had been stalking me since I got off the tube in Thaden Boyce took a step forward and climbed on board. I looked like a weirdo, a rapist, at best a flasher. What other reason did I have for tracking an old lady through the undergrowth? No wonder she'd let her beast come and get a fix on me. I was lucky she hadn't ordered it to go for my throat. Rattled, I assessed my options. I could turn around and go back, but somehow that would be even more suspicious. I could stand here for another 10 minutes, caught between a housing estate and a golf course, pretending to have seen something really interesting. Or I could try to get past and out into the open woods. Luckily, however it may seem, there's never only one path through Epping Forest. After blundering off at a 45 degree angle to the main trail, my feet lifted dressage high above the scrub, I soon picked up another track wiggly and less well-defined, but good enough that I could accelerate and try to navigate past her. That was my plan. Stride out and skirt round in a broad crescent, 
pick up the path beyond her and move quickly up to where it intersected with one of the forest's big bridleways. It had the whiff of wishfulness about it, of hopeless hope more than expectation, a lack of conviction which left me exactly where I deserved to be. I came out ahead of her, but near enough for it to seem creepy. <laughs> she was moving quicker than I'd allowed for, quicker certainly than when she'd stood staring at me. She may have thought I was trying to cut her off at the pass. In a sudden turnaround, I was no longer clear whether I was supposed to be the hunter or the hunted. I picked up my pace, trying to leave her behind, hot now, ruffled and discomposed. Reaching the bridleway, I turned a sharp left, tracking back at an acute angle to the path I'd left, so that not only could I see the old lady and the dog near her waist, but see them cutting off the corner, inexorable, gaining on me, like the posse in an outlaw's most fevered sleep. I had allowed myself to think I'd lost them, and in that moment, I knew I needed to piss, regretting my large, milky coffee and its diuretic imperative. Now I tramped fast along the bridleway, being overtaken by nice ladies on horses, greeted by nice lady walkers moving in the other direction, and still pursued by my nemesis and her hound. As soon as I saw what looked like a path, I veered off right, searching for somewhere discreet to empty myself. The area is called Epping Thicks for a reason. Holly bushes have taken a decisive hold up here, so it's not as easy to choose your own route as it is further south. I worked my way in, ducking and twisting, and even before I started to pee, I knew I'd need to reverse. I was trapped. There was no way through. Back to the path, back to the old lady, back to the Alsatian, nearer, faster, then off the path again, and back again, two times, three times, each one more desperate, each one more frantic, before, at last, the holly started to thin, and I found a trail through and away from her for good. In an aimless, relieved zigzag, I drifted to the northern wall of Amesbury Banks, the dread and self-spooking finally dissipating. I was over the far side of the hill fort, as far as possible from the path that touches it, so there was no one else about. The earthworks rise higher here than at Loughton Camp, a gigantic ripple of soil, as if a god has dropped a slow-motion rock into the geologic pond. I sat on a fallen tree and drank some water, ate a banana. Local tradition had Amesbury pegged as the site of the last stand of Boudicca, when her revolt against the Romans was finally defeated but apparently Victorian archaeologists definitively disproved this, which is somehow typical of the Victorians. Maybe it was my feeling of relief or the low sun slanting through the trees, I'm really not sure, but it was as I sat there that it came to me. What kept drawing me back to the forest was the fact that I didn't have to stick to the path. And the reason I didn't have to stick to the path was because it wasn't a thin right of way through private property. I wasn't scared of getting lost, I was scared of trespassing. Thank you. Right. Well, well it's, um, it's working, but it's quite quiet. Oh, yeah, hang on. That's because I turned it down because of the music, because six, six Day Riot were a bit loud. Okay, so um, questions for Will. Obviously, if you've got a, a particular Epping Forest question... Oh to lay on him. <laughs> I can fail to answer it. You can fail to. Mm. 
Let's do it. Let's do it straight in. Don't want to leave you standing there. <laughs> um, Epping Forest's reputation for criminality yeah. and um, I think is much seems to be much less so yeah. these days than it used to be. My understanding is that it sort of stems from the as far back as the 1700s in terms of you know where skullduggery yeah. happened. What what your what, what did you sort of find out about that? Or you know it's a bit of an obvious target for the book. Yeah, I mean there is quite a lot about it in the book. I think it's it's interesting that um, in a sense, I mean you could argue that it's a transgressive space, and so what. Um, uh, poets and so on find wonderful about it is also quite wonderful for criminals too and there is a section about that in the book um, obviously uh, I mean it's been called the shadow of London and in a sense it's the nearness to the city which has, has traditionally made it a space uh, for highwaymen there's stuff about Dick Turpin in here obviously um, and later as a place to dump bodies I mean actually I mean most of the crime that uh, that we hear about connected to Epping Forest is not committed in Epping Forest, it's that the body is left in Epping Forest because often not very imaginative gangsters think that as soon as they see a few trees, oh we must be in the middle of nowhere now, we'll just stick it here. And, um, and then, you know, for instance, so for instance there was a body found at Hollow Ponds, which is really near to where I live, in two Ikea bags, a boxer setting case, only the summer before last, uh, which was, I mean, literally the most appalling bit of body hiding you can imagine they left it next to a boating lake in an ikea bag and it sat there actually for weeks with dog owners walking past till somebody's dog actually <coughs> pulled the bag over and he saw what was in it um so yeah so there's those two those two things are, are in a way i think are part of the same same phenomenon uh and i guess what i wanted to avoid doing was uh glamorizing that because I think it's a very easy thing to fall into and for a long while I didn't want to write about Dick Turpin at all because I just thought all I could remember about him was Richard was it Richard Curtis and his flouncy shirts in the <laughs> 70s or 80s on TV and I just thought oh it's just so um, it's so cliched and there's nothing interesting to say about it but actually when I did some reading and you find out that basically Dick Turpin was a mugger uh, it becomes a bit more interesting. Not least the fact that he was a member of a gang who imaginatively called themselves the Essex Gang. Whoa! I they must have spent hours thinking that one up. Um, so, yeah, so there is that mixture. And actually, I think people still think of it in that way, and it's, it's, it's a common reaction when you say, oh, I've been out in Epping Forest on my own, for people to go, oh, really? Oh, isn't it a bit scary? And it is sometimes. I mean, I'm a very cowardly individual. Uh, and the light changes or you hear a noise or a twig snaps behind you and you suddenly think, oh shit, I'm on my own, what's going on? So it can be scary, definitely. And I think there is that element of, you know, a, a friend of mine, the first thing she said was, um, oh, we weren't allowed to go. She'd grown up in Forest Gate, right on the edge, and she said, oh, we weren't allowed to go in Epping Forest when I was a kid because a mutilated head was found behind my house. I looked into it. I can find no record of this head. I presume it was just a way that her parents scared her into not going into the woods. But I often, that's often the reaction that I get from people is, oh, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, let's have a look. I'm going to... Person here, then you, then you. Okay? Oh, gosh, they're building up. Um, did you ever go, like, purposefully camping, like, overnight? Did you ever spend a night or take uh, anyone with you? Or well, Actually, the end of the book revolves around me deciding to spend a night sitting up a tree in Epping Forest.
but I'm not going to tell you. I don't want to ruin it by, by telling you what happens because that is the end of the book. But uh, so yeah, I did. I did go up there to. to, to no, it took me months to build up to it. I, I decided to do it, and then I actually finished writing the book, the first draft of it, and then kept thinking, oh, God, I've got to go and do this, until eventually it just got so uncomfortable. And I'd all, once again, I told loads of people that I was going to do this. I just, I've just got to go and get on with it. But no, it took me a long while to, to build up to it. Because it is funny how it's exactly that thing, is that even though you know rationally that in a forest of 6,000 acres, although there will be other people in those woods, the chances of you bumping into one, let alone that that person will want to do you harm, is, is minuscule. And yet, once you're out in a forest in the dark on your own, it doesn't feel like that somehow. Which is, in a way, is interesting because it ties in with, um, I mean, there's, there's, I can't remember the, 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 the amount, but if you look through Grimm's fairy tales, uh, a huge amount of them mention forests, and actually, we grow up with uh, a lot of the stories we read as kids. The forest is a dark and slightly scary place, and so I think that's always there in our heads when we go into the woods, as well as the actuality of being out in the wood. I was saying earlier, I'm terrified of Muntjac deer as well, <laughs> which is ridiculous because they're tiny. They're like <laughs> little pigs, really. They escaped from somewhere in Bedfordshire in the early 20th century. They're from China originally. They've spread all over the southeast, and they make this really terrifying sort of devil child clippy cloppy clippy clop noise as they go along and then when you stop they stop so it feels like even though they're often ahead of you it feels like they're following you so, god where is it and they've got fangs oh yeah fangs too yeah. they are goddamn vampire deer mm. terrifying and apparently cough like they've got smokers cough Ah, that's what it was. <laughs> Smokers cough. So, yeah, fag smoking, vampire nocturnal, deer bastard. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Yeah, um, my grandma was born not too far from Epping, mm. so I was just reminded of something she told me by the first question. She said, every bank holiday they found a body. <laughs> the reason being, not that loads of people got killed on bank holidays, but because on bank holidays people would go further away ah, from the boats, so they'd find further them, yeah. away, they'd yeah, yeah, penetrate yeah. the woods, they'd stumble across yeah. huge lazy heads or whatever. Um, <laughs> uh, it, it, I mean, it, it was an enormous, I mean, in the early 20th century, because both her and her husband, my grandfather, grew up in the adjacent area of yeah. London, and it was a phenomenal resort for people in the 1910s, 1920s. My granddad did cycle trials through Epping Forest, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Trials. Yeah, it was known as the Cockney Paradise. Absolutely. That was, that was, that was the name of it. Tea huts and cycle yeah. cafes and everything. Yeah. And the tea huts are all still there, so yeah. yeah. And still very, very, very heavily used. Yeah. Not really a question, just a... Yeah. No, no, absolutely. Good, good, very good. Yeah, Much I love easier, I don't have to answer around the <laughs> yeah. monologue. Yeah, I love those. Let's have another one. Let's not have another one of those, okay? <laughs> Thanks. Um, I like the idea of it being transgressive and not at the same time. Um, I remember going out there several times Sunday lunchtime and there'd be a clearing full of big hairy bikers with big hairy bikes mm. and those scary looking guys. Yeah. And there's a little, um, not caravan, but a little stall selling bacon butters and yeah. coffee. And these big hairy bikers were congregating there on Sunday lunchtime, 
to have a bacon butty and a cup of coffee. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's so sweet. That's the tea huts, and it's because the first um, speedway track was up at High Beach, uh, behind where the pub is at High Beach. So yeah, mo motorcyclists <laughs> gather there. I think it's on the weekend nearest to February the 19th is the big weekend where they all go to, to, to uh, in memory of the first subway race ever. Subway? Uh, what was it? Well, Speedway. Speedway. Speedway, thank you. Speedway race that was ever held in Britain. So, yeah, there's always a lot of bikers up there. And some of them do look terrifying. I was, I was a bit surprised how well they mix with the kind of... Uh, uh, the mammals are out on their mountain bikes. There's sort of all these men in their lycra, but they all seem to get on pretty well, so... Well, thank you very much, Chelsea. That was really oh, interesting. Um, I was just wondering, in your research, um, did you come across like the sort of you were saying about the threat of it and the sanctuary and Epping Forest being seen as a sanctuary for cottages and for dogging? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's the other big. Tell thing us more. People, well, it's the other big thing that people mention to you uh, is bodies in the wood and dogging, and they say, "Oh, well, you're going to go dogging then?" And you say, <laughs> uh, "Maybe not so much." Um, so yeah, and when I spoke to one of the uh, verderers, who are the people who are charged with, uh, they're meant to be, uh, they're like the local authority for the forest, they, they complained endlessly about littering in certain car parks because of dogging, i.e. condoms left, and said it's an end, you know, we've always, we're, we're constantly sending out people to tidy up after them. And yeah, there are definitely certain spots where if you're wandering along uh, as a single man, uh, looking at your phone, you can expect that soon you'll find another man walking on near you with his phone, <laughs> checking to see if you, you show up. But, um, yeah, I don't, I don't know what else to say about that, really. <laughs> I think when we, had, when, when we had John Grimrod here talking about the Green Belt, he mentioned it slightly as well, that, you know, basically if you get a, a public space, which you can make a little bit private, people well, not, not too, private. Not too private just a little bit private it's a balance, people yeah. will find a way to get each other off in it it's one of those laws of nature it's like n nature revolves a, va a vacuum where people aren't wanking each other off in that's my theory anyway <laughs> glad we've established that <laughs> <laughs> i'm going to higher the tone a bit here <laughs> um i was just i was just wondering how much of the 6000 acres is still forest as we would think of it before we actually arrived here this evening and did you look much into does your book goes much into sort of the sort of terrain the trees and that sort of thing uh, it's less it, yeah it's one of those it's less about the trees than about people to be honest mm. um i'm not a naturalist by any stretch of the imagination um so uh in all honesty if you want a book about trees there are bet much better books to get uh, but yes the terrain is um, yeah it's I mean all 6,000 acres is still there in fact it's slightly bigger than it was when it was first um, uh, made into a forest because a few areas have been added to it have been donated and yeah a lot of it is covered in trees um, I mean you can uh, I've got lost just down the road from me near Leytonstone, wandering around through a small bit of wood. And it's amazing how easy it is to get lost in woods because the sight lines are so bad. So if you don't stick to a path, if you just set off in one direction, it's, it's surprising how quickly you find you have no, and I think I have a good sense of direction, but it's surprising how quickly you find you've got no idea where you are at all. And then you blunder around until you hit a road and you can figure it out or you cheat and look at Google Maps or whatever. Um, 
So there are a, a huge amount of trees, yeah. I mean, if you haven't been before, I'd recommend going up. Oh, no, I've oh, been many have, times. Yeah, I, okay. just don't, you I just don't know. You don't know the bottom. Mm. I mean, there are parts. I mean, down at Wanstead Flats, there are football pitches over one part. Uh, but most of it is still, yeah, it's wild parkland, yeah. Mm. Absolutely. What's the longest amount of time you've been lost? Oh, <laughs> good question. Uh, it always feels like ages, that's the thing, even if it isn't very long. I did go one year, I went with, um, uh, there's a, what's it called? Oh, I've got it. The Roading Rally it's called, and it's a nighttime orienteering race. It's an all-night orienteering event that goes on every November, I think. And I took, <laughs> it's one of the most bizarre things I've ever done. Uh, my daughter did Woodcraft folk at the time, and so I took her and two of her friends from Woodcraft. Uh, there was a whole bunch of us going to do the roading rally, uh, and they were teenagers, uh, and they just walked along arm in arm, chatting about nothing to do with the roading rally, while I got us completely lost, and in the middle of a pitch black wood in the middle of the night, and just sat, wandered around going, <laughs> Everything's fine! And they're going, anyway, so then he said this, and then she said that. Don't worry, don't panic, nobody panic! So, and that felt like an awfully long time, and eventually, on that occasion, we did hit a road, and I did look at my, I cheated, which actually, if there's anyone here from the Rodin Rally, I would be my, I, I don't think I finished, so I think it's okay. But I did look at my uh, phone and work out where I was, because that was a bit more scary. But the nice thing about Epping Forest, actually, is um, we don't, get many opportunities to get lost. And actually, it's a really, um, uh, the, the, the beauty of Epping Forest is it's quite a safe space to be lost in because you are gonna hit a road sooner or later. You're not gonna starve to death out there. So you actually get the feeling of being lost. You get the, the extra heartbeat and the sweats and the, and the overall sense of panic without actually being so lost that you're gonna die. Uh, so, and I actually think it's a, really, it's a really good thing to do. It's quite a liberating thing to do to go and get lost occasionally. And that is the beauty of Epping Forest, I think, really, is the broader point, is that you don't have to... It's very easy to go to Epping Forest and stick to the same paths and do the same walk that you've done for year after year after year. But you don't have to. The paths are only there because, because that's where people have always walked. You can just go, I'm going to go there and set off, and, it's, and, that's, and that's really good fun. And it's a really quite a unique experience. Most of the time when we walk in the countryside, we are walking along literally a narrow right of way. And you're constantly scared that if you step off, a farmer will appear and shout, get off my land, and, and fire a shotgun at you or something. So the beauty of Epping Forest is you can just go anywhere and, and be lost and uh, fall in ditches and so on. <laughs> fall in ditches. That's, my, uh, that's definitely the best thing to do. On that note, um, Will's book's available over there. Tom, how much is it? £15. Uh, cash or card? Both. Both. Um, if you'd care to have a copy, and I'm sure... I'd be more than happy to... Got your scribbling hand on. Um, otherwise, we're going to say thank you very much, Will Ashen. <laughs> and, yeah, thank you very much. Um, New Land... This, this thing is called New Land. It's kind of a spin-off from the London 14 Society. We're back probably next year, um, more landscape and science and stuff like that. So we're on Twitter and Facebook. Uh, we'll just keep an eye on the Conway Hall site. Thanks very much for coming. If anyone fancies a beer afterwards, we'll be in the Enterprise. Thank you. Thank you.